Welcome everyone to our second Africa Talks event this year, which builds on a discussion we had last year with colleagues from Cornell, LSE and Chatham House, focused on the impact of COVID-19 on Africa's food security. Today, we reflect on what challenges and opportunities exist for the African continent in terms of a food secure future. However, before we begin our conversation, I have an exciting announcement to share with all of you. Today marks the first day the Firoz Lauji Center for Africa formally becomes the Firoz Lauji Institute for Africa. This moment marks the start of the year-long launch of the Firoz Lauji Institute for Africa, where we will be hosting a myriad of events and activities throughout the academic year for you to get involved in. We would like to express our deep gratitude to Firoz and Lajma Lauji and their family for their generous support in helping us to establish the center five years ago and helping us develop into a fully fledged LSE Institute. These achievements would not be possible without their belief in our mission. The work of the Institute in the years to come will be to reach across the school to promote the visibility of Africa in LSE's teaching, research and policy engagement. We will work tirelessly to widen participation and access to the LSE from African students and African scholars and to bring African perspectives to LSE. Reflecting on this past year, our programme activities have continued to expand despite the current situation. Notably, our events programme has expanded its online presence, allowing us to reach more people across Africa. Responding to the wave of Black Lives Matter protests last spring and the increasing spotlight on systematic racism in higher education. We've established the, the decolonization hub to support anti-racism at the LSC and beyond. A wealth of useful resources can be found on our webpage. The research program has expanded its reach by becoming truly multidisciplinary, welcoming new and innovative projects on COVID-19, public health, South-South relations, resilience datification, social networks, humanitarianism and public policy. Furthermore, our African engagement program and program for African leadership have been pivotal for doing this work and supporting current trends by offering bespoke workshops on career planning, project management, mental health and well-being, and the introduction of an internship program launching this summer. So if you haven't engaged with our work yet, we encourage you to do so. This year, the Institute will be working to establish the Africa Trade Programme, led by Dr. David Luke, host exciting seminars and events, hopefully some in the flesh, rebrand our physical space at the school to welcome you back in person, continue to deepen our connections and engagement with Africa. These are just some of the exciting aims we have for this year. We hope you will join us. Thanks so much for attending today's event, and I now hand you over to the chair. 
Thank you, team, and thank you all for joining us today. My name is Stephanie Levy. I teach and I conduct research in the Department of International Development at LSE. I'm thrilled to be chairing this event today. I was present when team Marta and our colleagues um, opened the center five years ago, and um, it is my pleasure to be part of the launch of the Institute with this event today. Um, I would like to add to team presentation that um, for many of my students and many LSE African students, um, the center has been supportive, stimulating, enabling for them uh, to unleash their potential. For many of my students, it has, it has greatly contributed to making their experience of studying at LSE rich, fruitful, enjoyable. So uh, I'm grateful for, the, uh, for all of this. I'm grateful for the center, to the center for all of this. Um, I would now like to introduce our three speakers. So we have the privilege of having with us today Sarah Mbago-Bunu, who is the director of the East and Southern Africa Division at the International Fund for Agricultural Development, IFAD. Sarah has over 20 years of experience in agriculture and rural development uh, across Africa. She has worked on agricultural policies, access to agri-finance, value chain development, and much more. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you for joining us. Jane Mbuko is an associate professor and head of the horticulture uh, at the Department of Plant Science and Crop Production at the University of Nairobi in Kenya. Her research focuses on sustainable and appropriate solutions to reduce post-harvest losses in Africa. So extremely relevant to what we are discussing today. She works with smallholder farmers and value chain practitioners to build capacity and to promote technology adoption. Uh, I am particularly grateful to both of you to be here today. I know that it is uh, uh, Madaraka Day uh, in Kenya, so happy, happy day. And thank you for uh, joining us, uh, especially today. Um, Abebe Aile Gabriel is FAO Assistant Director General and Regional Representative for Africa at FAO. Abebe has more than 30 years of extensive experience at national and international level focusing on agriculture and rural development in Africa. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining us. So each speaker will present for 10 to 15 minutes, and we will then open a discussion session, a 30-minute discussion session for all of them to exchange uh, um, on the future uh, uh, of uh, uh, food security in Africa to compare their experience. Um, during the third part of this of this event, speaker will answer questions from the audience. So please uh, write your questions in the Q and A box that you have in the bar below. Um, you can do so during the presentation and during the discussion, and I will direct your question to our speakers uh, uh, during the uh, the third part of this uh, of this uh, event. So. Um, Abebe, the floor is yours. Thank you, uh, Stephanie. Uh, distinguished participants, uh, I'm very happy to, uh, to be with you today. Uh, Sarah and Jane, uh, very happy to be uh, one of the speakers joining you. Good afternoon uh, from Accra, Ghana. 
And uh, thank you for the opportunity to speak uh, today on a topic that is uh, so central, so important. Uh, now, I, uh, I would like to um, start by um, saying a few words about uh, how the African situation uh, could be a little bit different <laughs> uh, because we are talking about uh, the, the food security and agriculture in Africa post COVID-19. Uh, so the, the background is COVID-19. Uh, and so the first point I want to make is that the Africa's uh, agri-food systems are defined by vulnerability to multiple and overlapping shocks. So it's not just one, one particular shock. Uh, there are many and they are overlapping. So we, we have the issue of having to deal with these multiple and overlapping shocks, shocks and threats. Some of them are climate-related shocks, others transboundary pests and diseases. You may have heard the desert locust in East Africa, the fall armyworm <laughs> has been with us. Uh, the conflicts, very uh, wide, widespread in Africa, the economic downturns or, or slow, slowdowns and so on. So even before COVID-19 pandemic, in 2019, there were 250 million hungry people in Africa, so even before COVID-19. And the prevalence of undernourishment increased from 21.2% in 2015 to 22% in 2019. So it's not only that the problem was there, but also it was increasing even before COVID-19. Healthy diets have become out of reach for nearly three quarters of Africans because they are simply not affordable. Uh, over half of all Africans, about 51%, cannot afford a nutrient adequate diet. And um, of the 185.5 million people globally who cannot afford an energy sufficient diet, the vast majority about 80% live in Africa. COVID-19 is an additional shock, so which, is, which has definitely uh, further compounded the problem. And so this would present Africa's context to be somewhat unique. But also there is another aspect, which is the second aspect that would make the African case unique. And this is the absence of effective and educate mechanisms to manage the impacts of those shocks. For example, African governments, with very few exceptions, could not provide what's called stimulus packages, similar to what uh, many developed countries have done, uh, mainly because of the fiscal constraints. These capacities have, have been further dwindled because of public health emergency considerations due to COVID-19 pandemic. Now, there, there are recent uh, reports from FAO on the impacts of COVID-19 and evidences from field assessments. Uh, I just want to share with you, for example, increased levels of food insecurity in 2020. COVID-19 may have added between 23 to 39 million people to the ranks of undernourished in 2020 in Sub-Saharan Africa. Agri-food SMEs, small medium enterprises, suffered the most. And this through decreased sales, 
difficulty accessing raw materials and inputs, reduced availability of workers, and so on. The vulnerable groups have been disproportionately affected, including women, rural youth, smallholder farmers, pastoralists, artisanal fisher folk, migrants, seasonal workers, internally displaced persons, and so on. So the impact of reduced incomes on food security and nutrition is huge for this group of people. FAO's recent report finds that globally, up to 1 billion people would be unable to afford a nutritionally adequate diet if a shock reduced their income by one third. Just note, a reduction, a potential reduction in income by one third could increase the number of nutritionally, uh, the number of people who would face challenges meeting the nutritionally adequate food to 1 billion. There are concerns that most African economies won't be able to provide post-pandemic recovery options. Recovery is likely going to be slow and uncertain because the crisis is still unfolding. So this is the kind of context we have. Second problem is that the agri-food systems in Africa feature a lot of inefficiencies. These are caused by structural deficits. If we look at the resource inefficiencies, the resource use inefficiencies, we find that the source of agricultural growth in Africa has largely been through expansion of the cultivated area, not through increased production. And this has been occurring at the expense of forests, grasslands, and other uses, rather than from increased productivity. Another study by FAO, which is very recent, on land use changes between 2000 and 2018, indicates that about 12 million hectares of forests were cleared and converted to cropland. Water use efficiency has been the lowest compared to other regions, showing only marginal improvement over time. If you look at irrigated agriculture, it is a still a single digit percentage point, about averaging about 7%. Failure of rains in just one season could have devastating impacts and could wipe out whatever little progress may have been achieved. These practices are not sustainable, clearly. In addition, there are significant leakages along the agri-food value chains. Post-harvest losses in Africa are estimated to be about 40%, 14%. Of course, it varies from product to product. And this is one of the largest against a backdrop drop of low production levels overall. The task of food processing usually falls disproportionately on women. In many African countries, women spend on average four hours per day pounding grain. There is huge dependence on food imports. Weak intersectoral linkages, market and institutional failures, for example, low farm gate prices running parallel to high urban food prices within relatively short geographical distances. So, so these are examples of how constrained the agri-food systems are. Coming to solutions, now transformation to a more efficient, a more inclusive, a more resilient, and a more sustainable agri-food system provides a lasting solution.
And FAO encapsulates strategic actions around four interrelated betters. Better production, which is a basic foundation, because unless the productivity of agriculture is enhanced through efficient resource use, Africa's agri-food sector cannot make a headway. Second is a better nutrition, that's enabling availability and access to energy, nutritious and healthy diets. And the third is better environment, green towards green and climate resilient agri-food systems. And four is a better life, improved livelihood and better life for all. So in the African case, we need to remember that smallholder agriculture is predominant. Here, agriculture is not only the source of food, it's also the source of incomes. So better access to productive resources, to information, to technology, infrastructure, markets, and so on is key. Naturally, these reside not just within the ministries of agriculture as such, but mostly in several sectors, such as trade, industry, health, infrastructure, energy, environment, and of course, finance. Hence, multi-sectoral engagement and coordination remains to be very, very important. A relevant question to ask would be whether public policies and practices have not systematically neglected agriculture and the rural sector. In other words, is the agri-food sector a priority, a policy priority in Africa? Available figures on allocation of public investment in agriculture could be good indicators in this regard. For example, as percent of GDP, it fell from 0.64% in 2001 to 0.15% in 2018 Africa-wide. That it is not only low, but also has been declining over time. Compare this with the commitment that African leaders have made to allocate at least 10% of national budgets to agriculture in the framework of CADEP, the Comprehensive Africa Agricultural Development Program. The agri-food systems also involve several actors and stakeholders, not just farmers and government. Hence, multi-stakeholders engagement is absolutely necessary. This is also an aspect of the inclusive process. So in terms of policy, governance, and investment, we may need to focus on the following. <clears throat> First, address issues related to access to resources and opportunities to rural producers and disadvantaged social groups, example, women, youth, and so on. Second, address the infrastructure deficits in its both soft and hard aspects, digital agriculture, but also roads, storage, processing, transportation, logistics, skills, and so on. Third, address the issue of incentives to invest by relevant actors across the agri-food value chain, bringing value to the farmers, to rural producers, to consumers, the investors, and so on, such as factoring in consumers as significant stakeholders for health and nutritious diet, for example. Fourth, address vulnerabilities through well-designed and implemented mechanisms to strengthen resilience. And fifth, effective multi-sectoral approaches and engagement of partnership and multi-stakeholders. Another point is about emerging regional and global opportunities to support transformation. What opportunities there are. On the demand side, the fact that each year Africa imports food 
worth tens of billions of dollars is a good indicator of the size of Africa's food markets. With the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement entering into force, the African food markets are growing. The UN Economic Commission for Africa estimates that the entry into force of the Free Trade Agreement would expand intra-regional trade in agri-food products by 20 to 30 percent by 2040. On the supply side, the potentials for increased productivity and opportunities for agri-food transformation are huge. For example, according to some estimates, Africa could be two to three times more productive. The Africa Development Bank estimates that the value of annual agricultural output could increase from the current level of 280 US, a billion US dollars to as much as a trillion US dollars by the year 2030. Advances in technology in innovation are providing immense options in generating knowledge and providing solutions to increase productivity. New digital technologies are driving the agri-food transformation process at a faster pace that has never been experienced before, shifting how agricultural value chains are organized, providing new opportunities for more and better jobs, entrepreneurship, and innovations to address the binding constraints in agri-food systems. The development of post-production segments of food value chain, I'm sure Jane will speak to it, including processing and logistics, could particularly have a big impact on productivity, competitiveness, and job creation. The youth can take advantage of such opportunities to support the process, as well as to benefit from it. I would like to conclude by outlining some imperatives towards making this happen. First is about getting the narratives right. This is the need, there is a need to debunk some of the inherited, inherited narratives that agriculture is not economically attractive business and that the youth is not interested in agriculture. Agriculture is not just about tedious farming. It can be modernized, it can be made more productive and economically rewarding. Second is about exploring into what is emerging and the need to grab it as an opportunity. Example, digital innovations. Also, nature-positive solutions in the context of the Food System Summit, in which Africa can have comparative advantages and make a significant contribution. Third is about bridging the miss missing middle between the globally available, the global scale options that are available globally and the local and national level capacities, which are constrained, the force, is about the need to have effective dialogue and engagement, multi-sectoral as well as multi-stakeholders. I believe that effective institutions and leaderships are key towards making this happen. I thank you. Over to you, Stephanie. Thank you, Abebe, for this very inspiring uh, uh, presentation. Um, Sarah, would you like, uh, I'm happy to pass the floor on to you, if you are ready. Yes, thank you very much, Stephanie. And I think uh, I follow through very well after Abebe has uh, set the scene around the challenges facing the African continent, agriculture and food systems. Um, I would not go into further explaining the challenge that he went uh, very well into the details of what is ahead. 
But IFAD, the International Fund for Agricultural Development, really uh, is here as an assembler of development finance. So having heard a little bit about the challenge and the gaps that we face, uh, the challenge, of course, is to assemble, uh, to develop uh, and provide development finance solutions which are tailored, innovative, adaptive, relevant, and also ambitious because we have only 10 years left to attain the sustainable development goals. Uh, we need to unlock capital and wealth and, and crowd that in, in different ways. This is really a challenge. And, and for IFAD, we have set a new target of 1.5 billion uh, in our new replenishment financing cycle that starts in January 2022, uh, enabling us to have a program of loans and grants of about 3.8 billion. So this is the biggest uh, and most ambitious we have ever wanted to have so we can actually move the needle. Uh, by 2030. 20, 20, so why is this um, important? I think, you know, COVID impacts are multifaceted. We've already heard that. Uh, currently, African nations are facing a shortfall of about 285 billion um, until 2025, according to the IMF. Uh, so overall, you know, there's a real need for liquidity, not only to fight the pandemic COVID, from a health perspective, but to also preserve buffers for future so shocks that we heard that we talk about, and also try to return to the path of growth and catch up so that we can actually accelerate that growth to pull significant numbers of poor people out of poverty and combat uh, hunger. So this is one of the biggest impacts of COVID-19 has been, in fact, uh, the decline in growth uh, literally from an average of 5%, 6%, the continent is now experiencing 1.9% and even less than that. Uh, and this really is inadequate for the growth needs uh, that Africa needs, which is between 7 and 10% uh, to meet the aspirations of a very youthful population and to become more secure, more resilient, and definitely more prosperous. So uh, with that said, how are we going to be able to do this? Just to give you an example, um, for instance, the demand for popular produce from Kenya, avocados, the South African citruses, and uh, even vegetables from Morocco uh, experienced uh, a knock, 8.5% decline in exports to Europe. And Europe has been the biggest importer of those fruits and vegetables from the countries I, I talked about. Uh, tea as well, destinations like Iran, Pakistan, and United Arab Emirates. So all of this has caused contraction. So very few revenues coming into government. And at the same time, small scale farmers are not able to access important inputs like seeds and fertilizer, which are actually imported for their needs. Um, so we are facing a, a big crisis going forward. And there's absolute need to crowd in every investment there is in order to have inclusive, sustainable rural economies um, engaging youth and becoming uh, more vibrant. Uh, so what do we see? What is the position of smallholder farmers? I've been mentioned a little bit about uh, its impact, but in fact, smallholder farmers and smallholder agriculture is invaluable for food systems. To date, we know that 50% of all of the food calories consumed in the globe are from smallholder farmers and 30%, uh, we own 30% of the agricultural land. In Africa, this is 80% just to give you the scale. So 80% of our food comes from smallholder farmers. So it's even more important that we address it. 
Unfortunately, we are unable and have been unable to incentivize smallholder farmers. What we have been recognizing, the 95% of whom are subsistence smallholders, is just for the food that they produce um, and largely dependent on rain-fed systems. And with increasing water stress that has been mentioned, which is decreasing by around 30% every year uh, until 2050, this is really a very bad worst case scenario. We'll not be able and continue to underperform uh, in feeding uh, ourselves. Uh, what if we can actually incentivize these smallholder farmers for all the types of services they provide? And by saying that, I'm talking about beyond food, they pro also provide fuel, pollination, ecosystem services, pest control, they help regulate soil fertility, they help uh, sequester carbon, they help control erosion, they promote nutrient recycling, water management, etc. They help protect watersheds and landscapes. Are there mechanisms and instruments that we can use? And indeed, IFAD has tried uh, to do this and introduce these types of systems to really be able to recognize the full role and capabilities of what smallholder farmers uh, can bring. Beyond what we have been trying to do, uh, IFAD has been very adaptive and nimble. We have uh, developed a special purpose vehicle called the Rural Poor Stimulus Facility as part of an effort to grant in concessional finance to mitigate against the disruptions caused by COVID uh, imports access uh, to uh, agricultural inputs, access to markets, disruptions in that, and also the heavy load on loans that some of the smallholder farmers have actually received. So we're addressing four key areas and trying to crowd in digital in that process through the RPS facility. We set aside uh, 40 million of seed money and we have been able to mobilize quite a bit. Our ambition is 200 million to meet this, these, these disruptions. A very good case, if I may just explain, in Ethiopia, for instance, we have seen that our smallholder farmers were hit uh, with lack of access to labor, agricultural labor, because of lockdown. Uh, I've already mentioned limited inputs, uh, production capital, which has impacted on their production and productivity and basically obstructed their access to markets. And yet they have been unable to sell to service their small loans, nor actually save they've been digging into their savings. With reduced employment, reduced access to food, and um, increased responsibilities for women, there has been really a spark in vulnerability for smallholder uh, farmers, particularly women, and an absence completely of jobs. We have partnered with the EU to try and mitigate this, and we have crowded in uh, a special resource, a special fund, to enable SACOS, village SACOS and savings schemes that we have been working with to actually delay the repayment period for these microloans. And we have seen that this has had quite a big impact because the, the burden of the loan when there is no economic activity and when you cannot farm has been a huge relief uh, for smallholder farmers in the context of, um, of Ethiopia. And uh, this grant has been invaluable in, in, in really stabilizing the liquidity of these village rural savings and credit schemes. So that's been one very concrete example of what we have done there in, in, you know, with the special purpose vehicle. In the case of South Sudan, it took a little bit uh, longer because of capabilities and capacities there, but there again, we've been able to uh, really come in and offer a very unique uh, series of interventions. There we have aimed to touch 23,900 vulnerable rural people, roughly uh, 4,780 households, 
And with the grant, we have tried to address a number of things. The grant value was $706,000. And the idea was to provide tons of seeds for maize, sorghum, groundnuts, and selected vegetables at the beginning of the planting season, really targeted. And in addition, provide fisher folk. Fish is quite a, a, a good source of protein and also there's quite a lot of inland lakes that the South Sudanese use for fishing with kits for fishing. And we were able to, which consists of hooks, nets, pools of twine, etc. We've also given them training uh, on production technologies and also provided them with a very interesting, and maybe Jane will pick this up, uh, on you know, equipment ready, adaptable tools to reduce post harvest loss. Uh, you know, such as these little granaries, little hematic bags, some coolers, uh, silos, threshers, and uh, even refrigeration. And we are seeing uh, out of the 50% uh, of the beneficiaries who are women and, and young people, uh, a complete bouncing back where they are now able to actually plant because they receive the seeds on time. And they actually have coupled that in with adaptive storage facilities, really, uh, really being impactful. And so um, going forward and, 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 and trying to summarize what the Rural Poor Stimulus Facility uh, has actually done, we have been able to provide, for instance, in Eastern Southern Africa, uh, to all uh, eligible countries, we have been using the vulnerability index uh, to select uh, the countries of choice. Not all of our countries were immediately uh, selected under the scheme because we have really attempted to look at the most vulnerable and those most exposed to shocks. And um, the Inform COVID-19 risk index was the reference point. And in there, we used a couple of criteria. Globally, IFAD has funded 50 uh, 59 countries, and the grants have been between 0.2 million to 1.2 million as the largest uh, types of grants under this, this scheme. Uh, it did take a toll on colleagues, the teams, uh, trying to respond very quickly in a very short uh, productive line. We had to introduce specific and special guidelines to ensure that uh, this as an instrument worked. Uh, but we are very happy and we see that the immediate returns because uh, these short-term measures, short-term stimulus rural packages are really being able to allow communities right across Africa, those who were either needed at planting season to gain what they needed, and those who were at harvest to really be able to safeguard those harvests to ensure food security. And I must say, in terms of the digital solutions that we used as an opportunity to address uh, COVID, they ranged from, um, you know, cash uh, mobile money transfers in Zambia, uh, to voucher-type agri-input schemes. We also use digital platforms for market access and agriculture extension. So the, the, this, this, this has been really exciting because the large bulk of our more traditional sovereign loan type operations have been struggling to introduce digital solutions. But we found with this and with COVID, there was a real opportunity to crowd it in and uh, the impacts of this are quite incredible. I could go into more details uh, later. So thank you very much, Stephanie, and back to you. Thank you, Sarah. It's a very interesting presentation. Um, Jane, the floor is yours if you want to take it. Are you? Yeah, hi. Yes. 
Good, good evening. I my internet is not so good today. I hope I don't drop off while in the middle of my talk. But yeah, let's. Uh, so thank you so much for uh, you know inviting me to this uh, important session, and I'm glad to be uh, on this panel with uh, with Sarah and uh, Abebe. You know the uh, from FAO and IFAD. Uh, those are our big institutions. So I come in from the university from research and like you introduced me, Stephanie, uh, I'll bring it down to the law level. I work with farmers. And uh, so I, I'm going to just share experience of, you know, the plight of our farmers, you know, the smallholder farmers that Abebe and Sarah have talked about who really uh, suffered a lot because of, uh, you know, the containment measures that were put in place. Uh, uh, you know, especially the, some of them are still in place, obviously. But uh, there's a time when things were really bad. And it, as one person, as a person who works with smallholder farmers, I, you know, it pained me and were wondering what can be done better because uh, it, it is, uh, like a baby said, I mean, when we talk about a smallholder farmer in Africa, it's not just about food. This is their livelihood. This is you know, where they get income, uh, you know, for other expenses, be it education for their children, be it, you know, healthcare, it is all, uh, you know, uh, coming from their farm. So when you find that uh, they cannot make ends meet because of the restrictions that were put in place, then you, you, you feel the pain. You feel the pain of the farmers. And I know the, uh, you know, the, the, the food, uh, supply chain was affected by the, you know, by the COVID restrictions. But uh, I, would, I would zero in on the imp the effect of these restrictions on on the pe the food, the perishable food, because the incidentally, this the perishable food you're talking about, the fruits, the, the fruits, the vegetables, the meat, the fish, the milk. These are the nutritious foods that we were all encouraged to eat. Uh, you know, as part of our, you know, defense, protective measures uh, against uh, the, the, the virus. But then these are the foods that were not available, especially to the, to the, urban, uh, the, the urban poor, in quotes. Let me just say uh, the people who cannot afford. Uh, you had uh, a baby mention that, you know, already people in urban areas are not eating enough of the nutritious food. Why? Because it is expensive, it's not available, that is, it is bad. It was bad enough before, uh, you know, the, the pandemic. Uh, it now was because of the, of the pandemic. So I'm going to just look at, uh, the, pain, the situation as it was. And it still continues, but it has improved a little bit and it can get better. Okay. As you've heard that, you know, most of the food that we eat, uh, in Africa, most of the food, all the food commodities are produced by smallholder farmers. But especially for fruits, vegetables, this is most of what we eat is really purely smallholder, right? So, uh, and you realize that the, 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 you know, the, these commodities, the fruits, vegetables, you know, uh, roots and tubers really have an informal system, yeah? The supply chain is really informal. 
there's no especially for the domestic market is very informal uh in the sense that uh, you know you first of all most of these produces is, is from the rural areas and transportation is informally there's no organized transport or something like that so for example and the supply chain is generally very long and complex for example to get uh let's say a sack of potatoes remember the producers are small holder so a sack of potato is possibly what they can harvest at a go to get that sack of potato to to the market for example in the urban areas it changes hands so many times you know uh you know like i said the supply chain is long and complex so you understand by the time it gets to my my uh you know the retail shop near my house for example it has moved through like six people so it's a long supply chain complex you know really in between their their middlemen the brokers so this informal and uh, inefficient supply chain was really affected by you know these restrictions right so you find that okay fine so you you yes the food will still get there but then the system that it follows to get there is long so when the the restrictions were put in place these informal systems most of the time the food is moved together with people you know so there's no organized transport and you realize during the at the height of the pandemic there was restriction of movement of people so the vehicles that move with the food from the rural areas to the urban areas were restricted so we find that the formal so the farmers in the rural areas who depend on this informal market or informal transport could not move their produce to the you know to the urban areas which is like their target market so what ended up is the wastage the losses at the farm so there's no and of course you, you, uh, i don't know if it's sara or or sara mentioned that kenya exports a lot of fruits and vegetables to europe yeah so that market also was disrupted but for the domestic market which is informal was off so you can imagine even those who target export market go you know the product that is aimed for export could not move their products right because the system the informal system that moved this food was seriously uh, affected and then the ripple effect to that is that these small holders also supply small small scale traders in the urban areas and the small scale traders you're talking about the you know the small kiosks where most urban families would buy their their fruits and vegetables from so that supply chain was totally disrupted because of the uh you know uh the lockdown and all those containment measures so ultimately what i'm saying is that the access to the nutritious food for the urban population of the especially the urban poor i mean the people who actually you'd say live hand to mouth they buy today for today that was affected okay and while that was happening food was rotting away in the fields the farmers who depend on this produce for their livelihoods you know their livelihoods were affected significantly you know here farmers that you work with will call and asking do you know anybody who could be looking for this you know but it, there's only so much you can do you have a whole acre or half a acre of fruits or vegetables and there's nothing to do with that this you know the 
not because the demand is the, the food is not required, but it's like how do you move it? There are only certain licensed transporters, you know, the formal system where food was moving. So looking at that, so for us, we're looking as university, as my research, our research team, what you're looking at is how do we, what intervention, what strategies can be put in place to actually ensure that really this scenario that is 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 it's not just COVID, any emergencies that will happen. We in Kenya, we you've had probably you've heard of what we call the post-election violence, which is a cycle that happens and people are cut off from you know food supplies. So these are emergencies that really need interventions. These would be you know better interventions to ensure that food distribution uh you know systems that uh, link producers you know, to markets and while ensure that consumers do not have disruption, in, you know, access to quality food. And I'm narrowing in, I'm zeroing in on f- in fruits and vegetables because those foods are usually the, you know, the, they suffer most when we have this kind of uh, situation, lockdowns or emergencies. So we have to address the infrastructural, you know, the technological, the logistical challenges that would affect distribution of food. So what we've been trying to do uh, you know, working with the national government, the county government, is to to promote the concept of village, local, regional aggregation centers, uh, which which would serve as food reserves. No, usually when you talk about food reserves, uh, in most cases, you know, people just think about uh, cereals or pulses or, the, or maybe basically the grains. So in here, national strategic reserves, basically that, that's all about grains you know nobody thinks about strategic reserves for nutritious foods like fruits vegetables so what you're trying to say how do we uh you know promote because in many you'll hear national strategic reserves but how about regional local regional village level you know strategic reserves where we have um you know really uh uh, you know, collection or aggregation of produce. And like uh, the previous speaker said, you know, for us to do that, this, we have to, we must have the, the infrastructure required. We're talking about cold storage for the perishables, yeah, for fruits and vegetables, for roots and tubers, for milk, for meat, cold storage. Because without cold storage, I can assure, I mean, basically that is where food was wasted because your produce is ready. There is no market. Food is demanded elsewhere, even if government wanted to buy and distribute this food to the, you know, the people that needed it at the height of the party, where would they get it? They can't go to look for it in the village, right? So basically this needs government, uh, in national and, and local government to actually strengthen infrastructure that is required, whether it is a core storage, whether it is, a, you know, warehouses or storage facilities to, for non-perishables, localized, regionalized to where actually, you know, the farmers in the rural areas can actually aggregate this produce. And of course, uh, the aspect of small-scale processing, devolving process, you realize, for example, in most African countries, find somebody is producing milk in a village, but they have to move it to some urban center for it to be processed, for it to come back to the village, you know, for me to buy it from the, from the shop. You know, these are things that can be done, localized, 
you know, so that we have really, uh, you know, even fruits and vegetables, we can actually localize, decentralize, so that farmers do not have to move fruits to the urban centers for it to be processed into juice so that it can be sold back in the village for us juice. I mean, it is not the facilities that we require. And this is what we've tried to do uh, with our smallholder farmers to actually train them how to value add their produce locally. This, this way, you basically, we're talking about ensuring that regional, local self-sufficiency, uh, especially during emergencies, so that people can actually, uh, you know, access food. I know, I know my time is up, but basically what you're saying is when we have this kind of devolved system, we need to then link them to uh, whether it's aggregation centers or for fresh produce or processed produce, link them to markets. And the markets could be urban markets. It could actually be, you know, safety, uh, you know, safety nets, you know, those, those programs where like government is trying to, avail food packages to the vulnerable communities. Where do they get that? If we do not have, you know, like localized sort of collection aggregation. So this is what we're trying to push, uh, you know, supporting, uh, you know, this kind of system through, you know, uh, technology that is required, either for storage or for processing, so that then this devolved is, is of course, you're trying this on pilot, but we see this as a way of actually ensuring that, first of all, the farmers are linked to uh, you know market but also uh, you know food reserves are just I mean food does not is, is not following such a long chain for people especially in urban areas to access it so you shorten the supply chain and make uh, you know you know improve livelihoods for the you know the local uh, actors whether they're farmers they're traders they're processors I think this is a yeah I think we can talk more as we go into the queue I can see my time is up but yeah, that's what I wanted to say. That's what you're trying to work it because I work directly with the smallholders in that uh, we need solutions that can actually, uh, you know, help to to address this this these restrictions that have been occasioned by uh, you know this this pandemic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jane. Thank you, Sarah and Abebe. Uh, those presentations were extremely stimulating and interesting. Um, I have a, a few questions that uh, I think um, um, you will. Uh, um, that, a few questions that um, come to mind when I when I listen to your presentation. Some of them actually echo what we receive as well from the audience. So, um, I would like to ask about the impact that COVID has had on the policies. Uh, in the African countries where you work, whether there's been a renewed interest or shift towards intervention that enable and promote food security to mitigate the impact of COVID in the same way what, what we've seen um, with a social protection program. Do, have you witnessed the same kind of changes uh, in the countries where you work? Maybe we can start with this um, with this angle and, and, and then um, talk more about the changes that, that have uh, occurred as a response to COVID. Sarah, do you want to start? Yes, thank you, um, Stephanie. Indeed, I think um, the whole idea of rural stimulus uh, packages and also, as Jane added, uh, the need to intervene in urban areas for the poor is something that has really um, been on the agenda uh, for many of the countries that we work with and solutions for financing that uh, immediate. So I talked a little bit about liquidity needs. 
and uh, one hand to deploy emergency relief measures, uh, whether they are in social protection, but also for health, for COVID. That was very clear as one of the priorities, the policy priorities. But also in the short term, really looking at preparedness and you know disaster risk financing and be able to be responsive and having those buffers we talked about in order to mobilize, particularly for the informal sector. And most of the economies that we work with have large informal sectors. Um, we saw that the liquidity you know, facilities springing up uh, right across different East African countries for small and medium enterprises who were really hit with liquidity. And therefore, governments really requested specific grant facilities to be able to support also informal workers with, with, uh, with, with social protection for. So indeed, we, we have seen uh, this. Now, we also know that the African continental free trade area is there. There's a desire in the very short to medium term to fast track that and to harmonize and align markets, integrate uh, the East African community more, shorten uh, supply chains in that sense, clean out all the trade barriers that are preventing goods from moving from Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania, those food corridors are cut across uh, these essential uh, countries. So there's been also, again, room to support informal trade. So by introducing testing methodologies through digital that you can present at the border, you know, once you leave a capital and you get to the border of Uganda, present that and, and have that, those capabilities at border crossings. So many innovative uh, things. And I think the final thing I would like to say is that uh, this whole One Health uh, discussion has become very, very important now. There's renewed uh, an understanding, a deeper understanding about having One Health under regional uh, settings. So basic phytosanitary gaps in poultry livestock systems across the different countries in East or Southern Africa can have a huge impact. And therefore now there's been a big discussion as well with health sector to say, how can we harmonize and work closer together to, to, to be, because health is a pillar now for economic, economic trade and, and agriculture. So I stop there. Yeah, I think it will echo very well what Abebe was uh, presenting before. Abebe, would you like to uh, tell us about the policy changes you have witnessed and maybe also how FAO has uh, supported those? Please. Yes, <laughs> Stephanie. Uh, let, let's, let's start uh, to look at it chronologically. You know, when uh, remembering, we all remember how COVID, uh, you know, uh, started and how the world uh, reacted, responded to it at the beginning. Of course, it was a public health concern. Uh, and uh, in developed countries, uh, the governments responded, let me say, reacted um, very aggressively in terms of locking down. The terminology itself was locking down. And Africa was a latecomer. And uh, in Africa, governments, of course, copied, tried to copy uh, what developed countries have done, but not fully. Developed countries copied and you know, did lockdown, but they complemented it with measures to support households and firms struggling because of the, the lockdown measures. In Africa, the focus was on lockdowns without uh, having uh, put in place the necessary mechanisms. And therefore, uh, we, we, we could note that uh, people could suffer, could die of hunger and malnutrition by being locked down. The health 
concern, which you know is a public health concern, and this is legitimate. So one of the things that we did, and FAO among other partners were at the forefront, uh, making a very strong uh, advocacy uh, towards considering food supply as an essential function, uh, so that it can be protected. Uh, and uh, because these kind of stories are very relevant to understand how e policies evolved. Together with the African Union uh, and, and other partners, including Ifad, uh, Sara, she, she, she was part of this, uh, the Africa Development Bank, the World Bank, uh, the NEPAD, the AU Development Agency NEPAD, the European Commission, uh, WFP, we came together and we said we have to raise the profile of the food supply system in Africa to, to the highest policy making, uh, you know, Paul. So we, we used the African Union platform to convince the ministers of agriculture as early as April 2020. And that ministerial conference was very instrumental in identifying the priorities for action to respond that countries needed to be taken. The same ministerial conference uh, established a joint uh, steering committee co-chaired by FAO and the African Union and the other, uh, including IFAD and World Bank and the, the, the other organizations I mentioned uh, as, as, as members. And the, the idea was now to go back to the countries to see what, where the gaps are, how the country can be supported, what are the kind of changes that needed to be made in the area of policies, programs, if there is a need to reprogram and the, the, the international financial institutions, uh, IFA, the, the World Bank, Africa Development Bank, were willing to work with the governments to reprogram, to meet those gaps. And it was very, very successful. So we went with the countries, we followed it through our country offices, uh, supported the governments to do the assessments and provided the policy guidance, and they came up with response plans. And then many of the governments were able to uh, get the necessary technical and, and financial support to, to, to design and, in fact, redesign some of even the social protection uh, interventions, strengthen. One of the things which the COVID has done was expose the weakness of the social protection mechanisms in the countries. And so we use the opportunity to strengthen it. Later on, and you, you heard me talk about the multi-sectoral engagement. In July, we managed to bring together ministers of agriculture, ministers of trade, and ministers of finance, again, convened by the African Union in the context of this partnership, to see what the ministers of finance and trade could do to support food supply systems and the food security and nutrition issues in the country. Again, identifying priority areas for action and the, the, the task force were following and reporting on a regular basis. So the question, uh, to, to respond to your question, the answer is yes. There has been a renew of, inter in fact, remember I was talking about policy neglect of agriculture in general. So what we we're trying to do was to emphasize that this is a priority. If you, you don't pay attention to the food systems, you can focus on the health system, that is fine. And Sarah very, uh, very beautifully spoke about the One Health that we, we have been uh, promoting together with OIE, the uh, uh, World Health Organization, as well as with UNEP. Uh, that is one thing, but we have to have a holistic approach, you know? And, and uh, unless we protect the food systems, 
the food food supply systems in Africa, and we get we source uh, our our food not from uh, supermarkets in Africa. In many places, it is the informal sector, as uh, you know, my colleagues have spoken about. So we needed to be to 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 protect that. It's also source of livelihood. It's not just about food supply. It's it supports a lot of people as their source of livelihood, uh, and therefore. The emphasis was to really raise the profile of agri-food systems. We believe we have managed to raise it. Uh, Farmers were able, through these changes in policies and practices in many parts of Africa, to plant timely. The data, for example, shows the data that we collected. Those regions where the planting season did uh, did not coincide with those lockdown uh, uh, lockdown measures, agriculture did not really suffer. It it, it was resilient in many in, in many regions. So it's it's different. So we believe that it has worked. Advocacy for policy change it works. There is a lot of awareness that was created not just by ministers and and ministries, by but among all the stakeholders. So I, my answer is yes, positive. It's a good lesson that we have learned. Yes, I think this, what you described, echo very much what we find in other parts of the world, like in Southeast Asia, for example, where we work, or in other countries where the LSE uh, conduct research of this type, we have found exactly this kind of policy response. The question, of course, then is for how long is it going to last, whether the changes are, uh, you know, uh, sustainable also from a uh, fiscal perspective. So, uh, yeah, it, it's 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 very interesting. Jane, Jane do you want to contribute to this um, answering this question. Yeah, well, um, I'm not a policy person, but I'm going to say that um, I think we, we often, uh, the, the, you know how our government ministries work, there's Ministry of Health, there's Ministry of Agriculture, you know, there's usually no, uh, you know, connection between those. But I can tell you during the, this pandemic, these ministries, especially going back to the issue of nutrition and access to nutrition, nutritious food, uh, one of the programs that I really ap- uh, appreciated that came up as a result of response to uh, the call to uh, the people, why people must eat nutritious food. Now the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Agriculture working together to ensure that uh, especially urban population having access to uh, nutritious food. So government, uh, the Minister of Agriculture introduced a program uh, uh, of, uh, you know, promoting a kitchen gardens, you know, and even uh, donating, uh, you know, these, uh, uh, you know, the, what do you call them, the, the story vegetable garden for urban families. And then we started to see this, uh, now the Ministry of Agriculture people in the Ministry of Health working together to, you know, prom- uh, like, uh, you know, raise awareness about uh, uh, the importance of nutritious food to, uh, you know, to your defense mechanism of defense against COVID. And so you can see that now the, the, the two ministries now working together, one complementing the efforts of the other, because, uh, you know, agriculture wouldn't otherwise feature in matters of health. But now the fact that we need nutritious food, now it's fine. Government actually uh, rolled out a whole program to, you know, promote, uh, you know, this uh, nutritious food uh, 
people eating nutritious food people accessing uh you know uh kitchen gardens in the in the balconies so there's a whole program on this so for me that was something that usually that it is something that we know we need to eat nutritious food but there has never been a push from government to encourage people to eat nutritious food but this uh, this program under ministry of agriculture was a, you know a good thing that was i would say a, a product of the, uh, the 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 challenges that were brought uh, due to people not having access to nutritious food especially in the urban areas yeah it's extremely interesting to see how opportunities can arise uh in in circumstances like those one who are tragic uh where uh, actually the future of food security can 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 be uh, um placed at the center of your action and of policies as well which is um what we all hope for um thinking about those issues further i'm wondering what kind of research evidence you would need in order to uh, um uh develop your programming for your program further w what is it that researchers and that's the question that maybe jane will also like to uh, um uh, the answer that she would like to to hear what kind of evidence do you need that are different in the case of covid which are to 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 help you in in your programming how has it changed the evidence that you need is there a specific um area that you think will be um helpful um abebe do you want to start yes uh again very very uh, valid question now i want to contextualize this with uh with the the concept of re resilience because the 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 background is covid-19 and we're talking about post covid-19 uh and we were talking about high vulnerability uh of the agri food systems in africa and therefore uh, building resilience um is, is very important and so uh the, the kind of evidence uh we need to achieve in order to achieve the objectives number one how uh how are the the interventions can help prevent because um uh, you cannot avoid the shocks this time we're talking about covid-19 uh, i mentioned a lot of other shocks the, the desert locust in africa was devastating and so on. we could not stop it but uh, we could manage it so how can we anticipate how can we anticipate in terms of planning and therefore and there was the need for strengthening data uh, and information that is very important how can we enhance the capacity of uh smallholders and others vulnerable to be able to absorb the shocks uh and you know, so the issue of because some of the the shocks affect directly their asset base we are talking about livestock for example who serve as draft power for agriculture and a shock such as uh drought heat strikes right at the at the, at the production assets so how can we uh strengthen a system that can absorb the shock uh but also for the system to adapt um 
and 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 of course to transform. Yeah. There is a lot of talk about what government should do to support uh, smallholder agriculture and so on. In the African case, evidences have indicated that, you know, yes, it is desirable, but in actual fact, it's not going to change dramatically, however desirable it could be. Of course, we have to make advocacy, advocacy for policy support and so on. How can we really strengthen the capacity of local actors, farmers, the youth, the women, institutions, producers, organizations, uh, and, and, and so on, for them to play important roles to provide not only the services required services, but also for them to be vibrant economic activities in rural areas. Thank so you. for me, you know, uh, there is a lot of, uh, it's, what is the incentive? How, how, what kind of incentive should be available for uh, smallholder farmers, for example, or the youth in rural areas to invest in interventions that strengthen the resilience for, for prevention, for anticipation, for better absorption, for adaptation, and, and so on. And then what kind of evidence do we need? Do we provide? Okay, why should I invest in something unless I know that it's economically rewarding? So the evidence, I, I, I see the researchers, it is really incumbent upon researchers to provide that kind of evidence to show that investment in resilience actually pays off. Yeah. That's how we can convince the ministers of finance to add, allocate additional resources. That's how we can adv uh, uh, advise the investors, you know, providing evidences that their investment is not just wasted and so on. So it's a big question. Uh, it can have lots of answers. Yes, and I think at LSE we are um, um, actually uh, developing uh, research along those lines, trying to answer those questions. Some of my colleagues in the economics department work precisely on those uh, questions and um, and very successfully. So um, thank you, Abebe. Sarah, would you like to add to this? Yes, indeed. Thank you very much. I think uh, making the case uh, is based on evidence, as, uh, as, as Abebe has said, and I think we don't have enough data yeah. Uh, in some instances to make that case. So, for instance, uh, when we're talking about uh, soil and soil fertility and its ability to capture and sequester uh, carbon, it's still, uh, let's say, uh, a science that is known, but it's not fully how to capture and track and map this on GPIS. We have the capabilities of doing it, but we haven't done it sufficiently. And we do have carbon markets now. And so... Uh, you know, to make those carbon markets really work and that financing that you can unlock on those, which could be catalytic, you need to have the mapping of the evidence of that, of actually sequestering taking place in hectares and hectares of reforested or restored landscapes. And with that type of evidence, then you can actually uh, make a case for different prices and different pricing on that market, which could then unlock a lot of development finance, and I think somebody mentioned the ecosystems, payment for ecosystem services, I saw that in the chat, but the regulatory environment for that and the case for that for private and public investment is really this evidence that we need. And we can start it in a small way or in a large way. And I think the locus 
invasion that Abebe talked about presents us an opportunity. We now have systems of killing the hopper locusts, but also the eggs. And in that process, we can improve soil and map that. So that's one, one way of doing it. We're also tracking uh, climate finance, whether it's for adaptation and mitigation. We have many reports coming out with different types of indexes, asking finances to really trace and see if they are supporting adaptation to climate for smallholder farmers and other actors in food systems or mitigation. And I think there's very little going into adaptation. There's more going into mitigation globally if you look at renewable energies and so on. And really, it's only about 2%, which is in the hands of smallholder farms, which is exposing and putting our food systems at real risk. We have that evidence. So that's what we hope to actually be able to share when it comes to COP26. This is very important. And we want to be able to demonstrate in two or three cases that that is not happening. Of course, people are less willing, organizations all around the world, to demonstrate that they're falling short of what they've been saying in terms of adaptation. But I think there's, there's a case to be said there. And then private sector finance is increasingly important because public resources are dwindling. And I think the environment and social governance frameworks that many private sector companies are using to say that they're making a moving or responding to climate change uh, is, is, is very limited because we have very different definitions and interpretations of that. There needs to be a global movement to harmonize those indexes of what do we mean when we are talking about sustainable development finance, when we talk to the private sector who are looking at other me metrics of measurement. Uh, there's a big opportunity here to harmonize uh, the measurements and indicators because a lot of money is being spent in this field to gather evidence and then it doesn't correlate. You cannot compare apples and pears with different stakeholders talking about different things. And so I think it's a great opportunity for the Firoz Lavaji Institute now for Africa, which has just been launched. And I think Tim Allen had that wonderful video at the beginning of the session to really you know, have, have you maybe and others who are academic looking into the various metrics as an indicus, in indices so that we can really harmonize and, 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 and talk about what it is that we want to, to, to change in terms of evidence so maybe i stop there now no, it makes a lot of sense and it's uh, it's uh, it's uh, extremely helpful to 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 hear this uh, thank you sarah um i'm aware of the time and the discussion is so fascinating that i think uh, i we are already uh, we are 15 minutes before the end and I, i'm i'm i have a few questions that are very important that came up in the, in the q a box jane do you want to add something about new research questions before we take the questions from the audience or I just go on with the questions please oh uh, i was i was asking questions about new kind of uh, um new uh, research evidence from uh, from needed from 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 us researchers um but but maybe that question was particular you are already producing them so i believe it was um very much uh, a question for uh sarah and uh Abebe in the design of their programs um unless you want to add something to this chain or should i take the question from the audience it's okay just proceed with the questions from the audience <laughs> okay okay excellent thank you um so uh we've had a number of questions that relate to environmental uh, issues about uh, um, water waste about let me just briefly um, look at them we have question on regenerative agriculture uh, uh, how important is it to improve uh, food security in Africa we have questions 
on uh, um, recycling water and organic waste from urban centers, whether that's, that's also um, something that you are uh, working on, what's the role of, uh, of those um, elements in uh, improving uh, the future for uh, food security in Africa. Um, I think I will stop there and take maybe if, if uh, one of you would like to, to, to address, to answer these questions. Um, Abebe, yes? Yeah, yeah, okay, thank you so much. Uh, these are very important, very interesting questions, regenerative agriculture. The answer is, of course, yes. And Africa uh, provides, um, you know, a, a kind of scenario where you can find almost everything. And you can, these are opportunities. Uh, already these are happening, you know, zero tillage, conservation agriculture, climate smart agriculture, and so on. A lot of uh, these kind of practices already exist. And we have a very excellent example, for, for example, on conservation agriculture in Zambia um, in this regard. So the answer in short is definitely yes. Thank you. Um, what uh, um, on the on the recycling? On uh, recycling? Yeah, again, interesting question. Uh, you see, when we talk about agri food systems, most of the the discussion centers on the production side, unfortunately. Well, it's true. It must be produced first, and then along the whole value chain. But the consumers are important. Uh, very important uh, stakeholders and healthy healthy diets is not just nutritious but healthy diet is also an important company. Uh, FAO now uh, is working with uh, mayors of cities and municipalities uh, in in the context of green cities development. So it's using uh, urban agriculture as a point of entry, but also linking it with agriculture. And therefore, in the process, using resources, including recycling and uh, you know uh, organic waste management, so we have very strong stakeholders in the urban milieu. Not just so, food production is no more uh, a, an exclusive uh, uh, domain of rural sector. It can also pr be produced in the urban sector. It's happening. We are learning from experiences in Asia, in Latin America, and in fact, in some uh, African countries, uh, there are also uh, good examples. And FAO is trying to uh, share experiences uh, using these good practices. Thank you, Abebe. Sahai, would you like to? I think it's important to also note that uh, small towns are also very important in the urbanization process in Africa, right across Africa, they play a critical role. And small towns manage waste and water very differently from maybe larger urban areas. Um, and we also know that agriculture produces a lot of waste. So uh, these days, and I think Abebe can also attest to this as well as Jane, we do have these rice intensification models where you can also have fish farming and use those combined models to have fish, uh, you know, also boost the productivity of rice. So it's really integrated intensification, sustainable agriculture intensification we're looking at. So these systems are not divorced from one another. And I just came uh, from a site where they are actually using wastewater. Uh, it's a small town uh, in, a, in a wastewater plant, a small wastewater distilled uh, uh, setting. 
to further horticulture and, and other types of, of, of agriculture from that. But we also must remember blue water is not only, and uh, green water is not only recycling waste. It is also green water that you can actually do, you know, rainwater harvesting, very old system, where you can capture really heavy rainfalls and store it for many months for productive use. And when you restore catchment areas, this is also providing green water runoff and actually preventing that and using water more efficiently. So using the same amount of water, but deploying it. And I think those are the agricultural practices that we want to actually uh, support and, uh, and promote. But I did see one other question that I would like to respond to, which was, I think, uh, you know, the, the question was, you know, are we going to make conditionalities take more into account local and regional markets rather than international and delocalized ones? Uh, I think we are focused very much on local, uh, local transformation and transformation of local systems. That's why we do have concessional financial instruments. But having said that, we're also changing and introducing other instruments that work directly with the private sector and provide these guarantees where they feel it's too risky to invest and encourage them to have inclusive models where they can offtake, buy from smallholder farmers. We're seeing these closed systems where they provide inputs and also purchase at a fair price. Having, giving farmers market access really encourages them to invest. And when you look at these systems and the prosperity of the community is immediately evident. I think we need to you know, document these cases much more and that offers partnership opportunities, Feroz, Lavage Institute, like yourselves, to document these cases so that they can be scaled up you know, within the country, within you know, other places and contexts which look like that in a very practical way and say these are solutions that maybe governments should be looking more into in, 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 push, in, in pushing the agenda for, for, for transformation. Back to you, Stephanie. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you very much. Uh, Jane, I was wondering whether you would like to tell us whether the uh, recycling of water, the, uh, what is the place of water management in the program that you uh, develop and work on with small farmers? If you, if, you, if you can do so in a couple of minutes, sorry, I'm just... Uh, <laughs> okay, so I, will, uh, I won't talk too much about water, but I was just going to add to the recycling of uh, yeah. waste food, huh? Yeah. which is uh, or kitchen waste which is something that is really now taking shape where the waste that is coming from either processing or is coming from the kitchen now there's a we have a program with some some of my colleagues in uh, in the animal production we're trying to actually use this waste that is generated either from the household uh, or from processing as feed for uh, you know to grow worms which are then used in feed. So, so that is like a way of recycling. So the, of course, there's a lot of waste that is generated from, you know, from in the urban areas. And, uh, you know, many of our cities are actually, you know, full of, I mean, have those places where garbage is dumped and, you know, you don't know where is, where is it supposed to go. So there are these, uh, you know, waste management uh, programs that uh, some of the research is focusing on. How do we recycle waste either into, uh, you know, uh, like I said, feed for, 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 
for especially for chicken for example in our program where we 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 training uh processors of fruits and vegetables we are trying to actually use the waste from processed uh, fruits uh to 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 be to supplement feed and see how you know for example if you use mango uh peel for example as a supplement in chicken feed uh you know to supplement the you know the yellow color that is is usually added to the feed to to give you the yellow yolk is that uh in a better way to use the waste rather than taking it to the garbage bin you know so those are some of the recycling measures that can be put in place as a better way to manage waste rather than just uh, landfills thank you jane it's uh, it's extremely interesting uh to to hear this uh, uh one one day you and i should talk about how it influences yields i'm i'm very interested in 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 those topic um be- before moving to the to the closing remark of of this stephanie uh, stephanie before sorry sorry yeah. uh, just one minute there was one question very interesting question uh, if you are going towards closing uh on uh, food sovereignty <laughs> you know whether has the question was has the covid-19 pandemic challenged some rural developing paradigms for example giving more relevance to concepts of food sovereignty in policy agenda yes this as an opportunity i th- i thought uh, we, we needed to take up this say something please do i haven't seen this one yet please do yeah it is very interesting question also uh, well there are strong voices some voices in favor of food sovereignty um among uh, you know countries some countries but what we have learned from covid-19 experience is that we are interconnected uh and uh, but also uh, there is less understanding and clarity of the concept itself of sovereignty some of them uh, would confuse it with a kind of autarky autarky you know for each country to uh, produce its own food a kind of self food self sufficiency which in the in you know it's not it's not really uh, uh realistic so if we are talking about food sovereignty as the right of people to to healthy and culturally appropriate food and so on produced ecologically sound and so on this is desirable uh and this is what we we are talking about you know for em- empowering in the people to define uh, what they want to consume and also uh, to define their own food and agriculture systems this is coming actually very vividly in the dialogues towards the food system summit the national dialogues it, it keeps coming uh, not much through the covid-19 window but as part of the the food system summit it will be very interesting looking forward how this is going to evolve thank you thank you abebe i think uh, we don't have the time for the last question i uh, i had prepared so um i would like to um thank you all very much for your contribution to this exciting event uh, i've learned a lot uh, listening to your presentation and your discussion i wish i could uh, invite you uh, to 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 be guest speaker in, in in my teaching i think for our students it's extremely uh, important interesting uh, inspiring to listen to uh, you as uh, 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 direct stakeholders in the, the changes that are currently taking place in Africa uh, to you Jane as a researcher working with small farmers i hope they have found the discussion uh, in- inspiring and and uh, and that it will um 
inspire them to, to, to follow your step, to, to, to work on those very important issues. Um, LSE is a, an education institution, and I wanted to, to um, briefly mention the fact that uh, for us it is extremely important uh, to give our students uh, a, a good insight on, on, on the kind of work that they can do. And I think for the center, it is also an, an important element. Um, as a researcher, I think as researchers, uh, our community of researchers, um, I would like to thank you for giving us a lot of food for thought, um, for sharing maybe some optimism around the fact that um, opportunity may have created opportunities as well by uh, uh, maybe, um, creating um, a, a, a renewed uh, uh, interest in issues uh, around food security. Um, it is, uh, it, it's, it's been a, a pleasure for me to, uh, to, to, to listen to, to your presentation. Thank you very much. Also for all of you who attended the event, thank you. Um, I hope we have the opportunity to work again in the, in the future uh, together and to hear you talk. Thank you very much, everyone.